I work with grief and loss and trauma, but through a lens of creativity and utilizing the idea of we get stuck and through that stuckness, we need to find our allies and those allies help us to metamorphosize and grow. Welcome to Bereaved But Still Me, the podcast formerly known as Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with information and support. We're rebranding so that the name of our podcast makes it easier for the bereaved community to find us because thankfully, there are many, many more programs on now for the bereaved community. What is EMDR and why would someone choose to use EMDR therapy to cope with grief? What is hypnotherapy and why would a therapist use that? We'll discover answers to these questions and more in this enlightening program. Our guest today is Edie Nathan. She is an experienced psychotherapist, best-selling author, and has been a guest on multiple national media programs, as well as a former guest on this podcast. Edie has worked as a grief expert for over 20 years. She offers helpful perspectives on coping with the losses of life. From the role of caregiver to the loss of a child, there is an abundant amount of grief. There are also gifts, which Edie calls unexpected allies. Today, Edie and I will be talking about different therapy techniques that she uses while helping patients cope with grief. We'll be learning about hypnotherapy and EMDR. Edie, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you something personal, if I may. It's become sort of a theme this year, unfortunately, with, with COVID. But we have a lot of people on our program who are experts or nurses and doctors and, and therapists and all sorts of people who work every day with COVID. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I am uh, finding ways to uh, thrive through, uh, through survival of this really unprecedented time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, finding that it's, uh, it's a time to, uh, to kind of take oneself on and see what, you know, see what you're made of and uh, what you can tolerate and, uh, and where the sensitivities come up and, and, uh, and where, where to find my own sense of quiet, for sure. Um, I guess the hardest part for me is that the way that I have normally coped is to just get to work and work hard. Mm-hmm. And if I don't find breaks and I don't create those breaks, uh, I get very um, edgy and uh, maybe even sometimes a little angry. And so what I've learned to do is, yeah, I gotta really, and that's, a, it's, it's a form of grief, right? And, yeah. uh, and not being able to control uh, my environment. And, uh, mm. you know, usually I, I'm able to, and I think most of us are able to have some sense that we are, have a say in, in, in where we are, when we're there and what we do when we're there and we don't now. I don't want to belabor it, but I find that if I make the breaks, that's when things get tough. That when I'm not breaking, when I'm working, I power through and don't look left or right. And I don't notice. I think that's just my coping technique and it always has been, but I don't know if that's valid for anybody else. Well, what's valid for you is not necessarily valid for anybody else. Right. I mean, that's the way it goes. Uh, I'm, I'm usually, I'm used to powering through, but the powering through uh, has has led to um, fewer breaks, which is, you know, like taking a walk and going to the train station. It was a break. It was a power through and it was a break. And taking mm. that away, I, yeah. I've needed to 
find my a different way of walking to the station, if you will. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, yeah. that brings us really into our first question. What, what, tell us a little bit about your background as a therapist. I'd love to share with you all the different tools that, uh, that I use working with grief, loss, and trauma. Mm -hmm. And some of those tools came into being within my own practice because I realized not everybody is the same. Everyone has yeah. a different fingerprint, so to speak, to sure. their issues. So, uh, so what I do is I work with grief and loss and trauma but through a lens of creativity and utilizing the idea of we get stuck and through that stuckness, we need to find our allies and those allies help us to metamorphosize and grow. And uh, so that's a, a foundation. And from that foundation, I explore creative methods like mask making and story writing, uh, and then more clinical uses of, of uh, tools like EMDR or hypnosis uh, or uh, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, how do you determine which kind of therapy to use for which patient? And is patient the wrong word? Should I be saying client? I guess I, I, I like client over patient, although I'd rather just say my peeps because... Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, patient kind of derives from, uh, you know, a medical model and the medical models speak to someone being sick. And I don't necessarily think, it, think that grief is, comes out of illness. We're not mentally ill when we're grieving. It can sometimes True. lead to that or be affected by that, but it's not mental illness. And, I, uh, whether we're depressed or we're anxious, it, it, th that may not also be a mental illness. It may be a response to our environment. And it doesn't mean that you're sick. It just means you're going through something that's an obstacle. And we happen to call those obstacles by given names, such as anxiety, depression, or grief. And I have to admit so, that was a trick question. I have to admit that was a trick question because, oh, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago, I was working on a film with, um, with a number of uh, psychologists and one of them got very adamant said, don't call them patients, they're clients. And that sort of stuck in my head for years and years and years. But it, it's, it's, but I think you're right. It's, um, it's a better way of looking at, at the people you're working with. Yeah. So how do we, how do we decide what, who gets what therapy? How do we get in there? So in a way the client decides, you know, they decide. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's less about my decision, although it, of course it is my decision ultimately. However, the language that a client uses in the room, the, the their body language, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of information that gets communicated on, on the words that someone uses to describe what's going on for them. And based mm -hmm. on those words, I will then go in one direction or another. And remember, these are all based on like a hypothesis or, or data that I'm gaining throughout the session. And based on, on the data that I accrue, I then decide I'm going to go this way or that way. And of course, if it doesn't work, then there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of tools that can be utilized within one session or many sessions. Can you give us an example without giving away specific information? What makes you decide with a particular patient to go one way or another? Yeah, there are a couple of variables. Uh, oftentimes it's, uh, it's 
the kinds of words they use to describe what's going on for them. Are they using feeling words? Mm -hmm. Are they using words that are more projective or distancing? Are, do they use words that seem more scientific than experiential? So uh, someone who is, you know, speaks from a more scientific perspective, uh, I may, EMDR may be a first go-to just because EMDR does, it, though it elicits emotions, my uh, position in the room is, is not to ask feeling questions. Uh, the questions that I ask are really much more um, kind of database, like what do you what do you experience? What do you notice? I'm not asking, so what are you feeling now? I'm asking, what do you notice now? So uh, I feel that, you know, that kind of person is going to be ripe for EMDR. Although I use EMDR no matter, you know, what the language is that someone uses because EMDR is a, a masterful way of helping people work through the images and the cognitive uh, pictures and commentary that they hold in their minds around lingering grief, loss, or trauma. You are listening to Bereaved But Still Me. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. That's michael at bereavedbutstillme.com. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. We learned at the head of the program that you use different kinds of therapies for different kinds of people in different situations. Can you tell us about EMDR, what it is and how it works? EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It was created by Francine Shapiro in the late 80s. It is a processing model that helps people who've experienced trauma and grief would be included in that to help them remap in their brains the way that they hold on to the trauma. And remapping means that when we experience trauma, we, we experience it emotionally we experience it in our brains in terms of our memories we experience it biologically it certainly affects how how our bodies uh react and you know from sweating to crying to dry mouth you know to retrieval of past memories that uh, bring us right back to the trauma emdr is an interrupter and so it takes the material that is disturbing and it actually breaks it down, breaks it up, kind of fractures it, if, if you will, so that you can think about that traumatic memory in a way that it doesn't overtake you any longer. And like grief, you integrate it so that it doesn't stop you from living the life you need to live. That sounds massive. It, it sounds like it makes an incredible change in the way we understand things that have gone on in our past. Am I correct? Yes, you are. And though it started with uh, just eye movement, 
it then evolved into uh, hand tapping and and external stimuli as well so that you know it could just be a sound that you hear it could be tapping or it could be the actual eye movement and it doesn't really matter what you use what's happening is you are accessing the left and the right brains and through brain scans they've actually been able to track this and data has uh, proven that this is actually what happens and if you think about the brain the brain is one of our greatest allies and this emdr is really the work of the brain and rewiring the way that the brain holds on to traumatic memory in what way is the the brain one of our greatest allies for these very reasons it's plastic mm-hmm. and we know that new it's if we think about an octopus and i like to like think about the brain as kind of an octopus and it's got all of these different outreaches you know and mm-hmm. and tentacles and uh, octopus when one if a tentacle is cut off guess what happens to that tentacle it grows and in a way if something gets cut if a tentacle a traumatic tentacle kind of stops being fed then a new tentacle within the brain starts to evolve and that new tentacle has a more positive different perspective in terms of the way that the brain is holding on to the trauma and that's why the brain is one of our greatest allies what you've described that EMDR should be the treatment for everybody clearly it is not otherwise it would be so how do you determine who it's good for and are there cases where you might use more than one therapy on somebody yes and everyone is different some people are not comfortable with EMDR it's just uh it arouses sometimes a feeling of being overwhelmed and and that does happen especially in initial the initial uh phases of EMDR a lot starts to come up a lot starts to get e- e- evoked and one of the things as an opening to anybody who's starting this process is you might find that when you go home that you have and you are sleeping that your dreams are more intense more involved you might find that you're remembering things or or remembering parts of the trauma that you had not remembered before or that you are uh feeling distant from your environment and these are all aspects of EMDR that that can occur and it, it's it's it, it's part of the process for sure and not everybody is affected by that I would say that if somebody is schizophrenic, uh, is dealing with multiple personalities, that one should be very, very careful about administering EMDR. And that's why before an EMDR session, there needs to be a pretty lengthy assessment. And before I do an EMDR, I spend one session just going over history, medication, and really trying to understand the depths of the trauma before i begin working with someone because certainly first and foremost i want my client my peep to feel safe and to feel that they can trust what's going on and i'm not going to just jump right into an emdr session i mean i would assume that if somebody's going to uh into emdr it's for something specific so we're going to talk about the time when 
this happened, da 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 da. Does it happen sometimes when you're doing EMDR that something unexpected comes up, something brand new just throws itself in the way? Sure, absolutely. And it happens more more often than not. And it is at that point up, you know, up to the therapist, up to the client, because the client is not able to speak or, you know, say what's going on for them. You know, the pattern of EMDR is is to wait for the eye movement aspect of the uh, 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 of the session to to kind of end and then they and then they share the data that that they're experiencing however at any time they also can raise their hand and just say stop they can say stop and all things just cease and mm-hmm. then there's a check in with the therapist so certainly sometimes one one traumatic event can open up uh, a, an event that has not been remembered uh uh, I'm going to call it amnesia, but it's just that the brain has put something away and now it begins to, to come up. And also within the EMDR session, before every session, a safe place is, is remem- remembered and created for the, for the patient. And that is, you know, always, always done at the start of the session, you go to your safe place, let's do the EMDR, the eye movement back and forth or the tapping to just remember what that safe place is like and that you can always go there if things become overwhelming. I'm amazed at the complexity of the mind and people's ability, therapists' ability to go in and and, and decrypt all of that. That always hits me. Now, what should people know about EMDR and what would clients look for in a good EMDR therapist? If an EMDR therapist says to you upon a first phone call, oh yes, I'll do EMDR the very first time you walk in, run, don't walk. And I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, sure. And because, you know, as, as much as clinicians want to help, getting that history is of utmost importance. And um, uh, especially now, especially because, you know, EMDR is, is sometimes done, you know, over the internet and it's, 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 it's done, you know, through Zoom, it, it's just really, really important to make sure that that history is taken. And so even though as a client, you may be saying, I, I can't stand this pain anymore and I've heard about this and I'm really excited, you know, history taking session or sessions is number one. It is a first priority. In that session, the therapist assesses the client's readiness and a treatment plan is agreed upon between the client and the therapist. And and that's got to happen. And, uh, you know, after, after that, then um, initial processing is sometimes directed at you know, events around childhood or events um, around parenting or parents or work, uh, just to get the client used to what the tapping or the, the eye movement or the sound. And I want the client to, to have a sense of what's going to be 
what application is going to be the most comfortable for them? Because frankly, you know, one person may say, you know what, I like to close my eyes and I just like to listen to the sound. Someone else may say, I want to do the tapping. And someone else may say, oh, no, no, no. You know what? I want the vibration of the pods. Or someone else may say, no, eye movement, that's the only thing I want to do. So, but they're not going to know that unless they're given a chance to experiment. And again, these, this is all part of the initial processing and, and, it, and it's important. So I would say that that's kind of like the first developmental phase of this. And then the second phase is, you know, understanding that the client has a myriad of ways of handling emotional stress and what are some of those ways? What's worked in the past? What hasn't worked? Again, so that I know as a clinician where I might want to veer uh, the, the EMDR processes and the stimulation. And the stimulation, I can speed it up, I can slow it down, regardless of what kinds of stimulation I'm using, whether it's eye movement or the, the vibrational pods or, or the sounds, I can, I can really vary speed and also the, 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 the texture of the, of the vibrations. That all affects outcome. Maybe somebody has, um, you know, executive functioning issues. So frankly, maybe noise and the vibration of the pods is not something that's gonna work, but that's information and that's good information to have. And, and then, you know, as we go deeper, we then look at the deeper phases and those phases, you know, can last anywhere from, you know, three phases, six phases, eight phases. And that's when we really start to get into this specific traumatic event. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. We also earlier talked about hypnotherapy as an option. Tell me more about that, because I think that's something that needs to be demystified. People don't really know what that's about. Have you ever driven a car, Michael? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Good. And uh, so, and when you get into a car and you have to go on an expressway, do you ever drive on expressways? too much but yes <laughs> okay so now you're on the expressway and you get it on at exit three right. and you need to go to exit 20 and suddenly it's Are exit 14 and i don't know how i got there is that where we're going yes that's exactly right <laughs> okay <laughs> so what and happens guess what yeah yes and and guess what that's trance right right there you are driving a more than 2,000 pound vehicle and yep. you've gone 11 exits and you don't even remember how you right. got there. Right. And you've been thinking about other things. 
Well, that's like a trance state. So when people say, oh, I can't be hypnotized or, oh, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid. That's really what trance is. Now, are there deeper levels of trance? Absolutely. And are they utilized to help people uncover uh, perhaps past traumas? Yes. To relax? Yes. To maybe even imagine that I use the, the idea of the hero's journey all the time. And part of the hero's journey is you start with this ordinary life and then something happens like the loss of a loved one or this pandemic or isolation or a breakup. And because of the manifestations of any one of those traumas, you end up in a dark place. And that dark place takes you into like a cave where you meet the parts of you that are dark, that are hard, that are struggling. And in hypnosis, I may use the entering into that cave and imagine that now in that cave, there are two benches and those two benches have two different aspects of you. The part of you that is the ordinary part of you and then the part of you that has been, mm, pained by this trauma, by this loss, by this pain. And I have the two parts of you in discussion. And what ends up happening is it's, it's like an informational highway in that cave. And the pain, the, the, the phases of grief can be revealed and discussed and anger can come out in that phase and be revealed. Anxiety or depression or malaise or Maybe it's even part of, you know, the numbness and the the sense of I'm so lost, I don't even know who I am anymore. And through hypnosis, we can go deeper into those different aspects of what I call the 11 phases of grief. And the first phase is the emotional armor phase that holds the numbness that holds the the just the 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 shock and and the hysteria and the sense of just I'm so lost and and being in that cave can really help through a hypnotic state kind of break those pieces down and legitimize how you're feeling while also perhaps creating somewhat of a distance or perhaps creating a conversation when when there has been none. It can also be a place where you perhaps have your lost loved one in the cave with you and you tell them how angry you are that they left abruptly or that you're sorry and you feel ashamed that you couldn't be there or that you should have taken more care of them or whatever the conversation is. But in that cave, it becomes a, a sacred place. And through the hypnosis and through that trance, so much can get unfolded. And then there's a leaving of the cave. And the, the hero's journey, the shiro's journey is one that we all take all the time. But I use it within the hypnosis to help people realize that then they come out of that cave and they are changed and they are forever changed. And They've, they've reached their threshold and they come out as a changed person and yet they are themselves and yet they are 
into a new ordinary and you, they are that new ordinary self. And this time of the pandemic, we talk about, oh, you know, there's a new normal. Well, I don't ascribe to the new normal. I actually ascribe to the new ordinary. It sounds interesting. It sounds like a challenge. It sounds very enticing to want to do this hero's journey. I would think that, that um, hypnosis and all its popular misconceptions and all its appearances in movies and television, how do you convince somebody who's reluctant that this might be the right thing for them? So first of all, my role is not to convince them, and I don't want to convince them. It, 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 I want, I want them to feel that we're in it, in this together. So uh, I will do some very light hypnotic like tests with them, and one of the tests is that that in one hand I want them to imagine that they've got a book, and in the other hand I want them to imagine that they've got a helium balloon, and then they've got three helium balloons, and then they've got 10 books. And all I want them to do is just keep imagining that they've got the helium balloons and the 10 books. And invariably, about 30 seconds later, I ask them to open their eyes and the, the hand with the books is all the way down and the hand with the helium balloon is all the way up. And, and it's like, okay, there it is. You were just hypnotized. And oftentimes that is enough within the psyche the part of the brain that that doesn't want to lose control and who wants to lose control, especially if you've lost someone and you're in the thick of it, you're already feeling like things are out of control. You're already feeling like, oh man, I don't want to lose any more control. I want to, I want to actually hold on and, and try to feel that I have as much control over things, over life, over myself as I possibly can. So so this is just a way to relax them. And again, this is the, the, the work of the brain. It's saying to the brain, you see, there's nothing to be afraid of. And so we go lightly into a guided imagery and a meditation, and we do that for a session. And then the next time we go a little bit deeper. And then the next time we, we, we have, I have a hallway and they picture the hallway and every, there, there are doors and there are doors that line this hallway and every door has an age, starting from 20 to 19 to 18. And we go and I ask them to now, I want you to open a door, go to a door where you have an amazing memory. 18, maybe it's your high school graduation or 13, maybe it's when you were a bar mitzvah or, or 10, maybe it's your communion, whatever it may be. and. And they go to that door and they remember it and they feel it. And what you're teaching them is that they can relax into this. And then each consecutive session within the hypnotic framework allows them to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And in that process, they, they will then find some healing momentum. And that's how the conversation of hypnosis begins. We have come around towards the end of another program. And before we go, I want you to share your website with everyone so that everyone knows how to find you and the books that you've written and where they're available. You can find me at edynathan.com. And my book is called It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. And I am working on another book called The Knowing and Believing Gap. You know what to do, but you don't necessarily believe it's going to help. Oh, you know, you're coming back, right? 
Of course. <laughs> I would love to. You can't leave a book title like that with a description like that and then walk away. <laughs> you are definitely going there. <laughs> and on this very happy note with laughter and joy and mirth and merriment. That concludes this episode of Brief But Still Me. And I want to thank Edie Nathan for sharing her experience and her advice with us. Edie, thank, thank you. Thank so you, Michael. Much. It's always a pleasure. You're coming back again and again and again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank here. you. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast. I will be with you soon. But until then, please remember moving forward is not moving away. We hope you have felt supported in your grief journey. Bereaved But Still Me is a monthly podcast, and a new episode is released on the first Thursday of each month. You can hear our podcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts at any time. Join us again next month for a brand new episode of Bereaved But Still Me.